namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Aparuta de Sangamatasa Tawara, ye sort of one tabamundan to Sadang. This is the Uposita uh, day. Two weeks ago, uh, Venerable Janaracho and I were on a ship going up the coast of Norway on the Wesak Day. And uh, we had a Wesak celebration on this ship. And it was uh, moving up closer to the Arctic Circle, so the, uh, the sunset didn't really set, it just seemed to last all night long. You get these beautiful colors on the water, on the ripples of the water, the kind of pink, you know, orange colors would mix with the blue and you get the beautiful patterns of the, as the ship would go through the fjords off the coast of Norway. It just the, the visual beauty that one can see. And so at midnight, uh, it was still light. And you get confused uh, when there's no night because you, you know, uh, used to having these margins to, to work with and it gets dark and time to go to sleep. But when you have, when it's daylight all the time, 24 hours, it's uh, you lose that something that that holds you to a to a way of moving and acting that you're accustomed to. So then, two weeks later, we find ourselves sitting here at this moment, uh, and that's a memory from the past of. And looking back at a whole lifetime, I see just a memory in the present. So I like to reflect on this, that a lifetime, you know, in terms of the present moment. Because uh, as you get older, you begin to notice that um, the sense of time uh, seems to, everything moves much more quickly. And uh, you've lived a long time, so that, uh, and you you have this convention of of memory. You know, I was born uh, in such and such a place, and I'm this many years old, and I went to this school, and and he did all these different things. So there's a, a kind of security in having a biography and a way of seeing oneself as a continuous person from the time of birth to the present and then projecting that into the future. When, when am I going to die? How will uh, the rest of my life be? 
the questions that come up, uh, you know, about what possibilities uh, that might happen to me in the future. But the reality is that, uh, that, that this is just mental proliferation, isn't it? Memory is, we have, you know, the longer you live, the more memories you have. When I was a little boy, I didn't have very many memories, except like waiting for the next birthday from five to six or something like that. Remembered the, the happiness I experienced on a fifth birthday, and then I was looking forward to the sixth. So that year was no doubt a very long time waiting for the mem you know, to have, have another equally pleasant time my sixth birthday. I remember my sister was two years older than I, so uh, when she became ten years old, she was a two-digit number, and I was only eight. <laughs> so I remember really wanting to be ten more than anything, and it seemed to take forever to to reach that ripe old age of 10 years old. Well, that's the mind of a child, isn't it, with the knowledge and memories that we have from our experience from childhood. And then that, those can be forgotten as we, as the more stronger memories from adolescence and youth and middle age, old age, take precedence. But whatever it is, it's only memory. Right now, at this moment, uh, all that I can I can reduce to just one memory. It's kind of a lifetime up to this present moment. Another thing is when you're getting older, you see the aging process uh, through the body. So, the, but mentally, you don't get older. You know, your mind doesn't age, but your, your body does. So then uh, this can be very confusing as you find yourself still thinking like a young man. And then you look in the mirror and, <laughs> and you've got these perceptions that you shouldn't be thinking like that anymore because, <laughs> because you're old. You have the projections of what old age should be, what old people should be thinking or or whatever we, we do with that perception of old age. Then all we can know is this is the way it is, you know, the thoughts, the memories, the emotional reactions I have in the present are like this. You know, it's not a matter of, not, uh, emotions don't get old and uh, memories don't get old they're always the same. So remember, waiting for my 10th birthday is still that, you know, it's not, not a matter of that it has any aging uh, ability. It's just when the conditions for that arises, then I remember. So the identi identity with the body, this is, this is a strong, identification and it's easy to intellectually 
uh, you know, say, well, I'm not the body, and to go along with the Buddhist teachings on that respect, you know, the body is not self. <coughs> but um, we can live our lives on that assumption, you know, quite unconscious, quite unintentional, uh, seeing ourselves as the physical body, because uh, that's the way the society thinks. You know, I am an old man because the body's old, or uh, this is the this is the conventional reality, of the the cultural uh, habits that we've acquired. So reflecting is that as of reflecting on the way it is uh, is the is the way to see through to break down the attachment to these perceptions. I'm not trying to convince myself uh, that I'm not an old man. I don't care, you know, that because I don't, I don't, I, I mean, it seems natural to be called an old man now, so it doesn't, it's not that, that that is a thing you should never say to me, because I will be terribly offended if you refer to the fact that I'm pretty near 70. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, this is, this isn't a, I don't feel any great resistance to even perceive the perceptions of being old. But noticing the way it is, and the, 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 the habits of identification with, the, with one's physical appearance. Vanity, of course, is a part of it, isn't it? And, uh, in a society where use uh, is is so highly regarded and aging is is uh, is resented. I think in in uh, old Asian societies, you know, the old age is a kind of relief. I mean, in, in you go to a Thai village and you call an old woman, oh, you don't look old, you still look young. She'd probably feel insulted. <laughs> that would please most women in this country, wouldn't it? Eighty-year-old women say, oh, you look very young. They'd be over the moon with joy. <laughs> because youth is what is desirable, isn't it? That's, that's acceptable, that's beautiful, and that's what the society praises and, and regards as what, what one should want to be, is forever young. But the mind, you know, look at the nature of, you know, just look, looking at memory, for example. It's just, it, it, you know, it uh, comes and goes. You can't sustain it. You can kind of keep kind of remembering it and try to hold on to it, but inevitably memories uh, come and go very quickly. And so to, to be aware of that is, uh, is, the, is developing the path, being aware of memory uh, as seeing it for what it is, as impermanent. Flashes up in it, and if the memory's a strong one, it leaves some kind of mental impression. So you, have a, you can have an emotion, remembering some uh, horrible experience you had when you were 20 years old or something, 
just when you're when you're 70, you can still feel angry and upset by just remembering that because the memory has uh, has that power to affect the emotional bring to bring up the emotional reactions that we had uh, 50 years ago. So if we were just helpless victims of our conditioning, then there'd be no way out. You know, the fact that we'd be just caught in, it would be a hopeless case of, of victimization. If we didn't have the best parents in the world under the best conditions where we were treated totally, you know, completely fairly, and, and we had all the advantages and of love and warmth and and uh, acceptance and justice and mercy and all the rest, then uh, we'd all be victims of of conditions that uh, you know we can always blame on the fact that it that that our the way we are now is because we weren't always given the best. We didn't have the best that that we can think of. So many people go on that assumption in their lives. They carry resentments and and blame and self-hatred and anger about the, the experiences of their past uh, because they're so identified with that. And, uh, and so then we, we become the victims of the society of, of unfairness and injustice that we experience. It's not imagined either. A lot of it, you know, is, is, uh, happens. You know, human existence is like this. It's, it's not an ideal existence. But it is the way it is. So then the way out. How do you get out of that trap of identity with the body, with the memories, with the emotions? And then we can try to just put stronger ones on top, try, try to affirm, uh, may convince ourselves, suppress uh, unpleasant emotions, uh, reject memories of the past, and uh, try to, to develop the power of positive thinking where, where we obsess our mind with positive thoughts. But then that, that can work for a while too. That has certain beneficial effects, but it, but it still doesn't, it's still not the escape from suffering. It's not the way out of suffering. It's like, uh, you know, Ajahn Chah used to call it, uh, uh, you know, um, he used to call samatha meditation like hintapya, which means the you put, put a rock on, on the grass and it'll bend over and it'll stay bent over as long as the rock's there. As soon as you take the rock off, it springs back up again. So this, just trying to deny or suppress or reject, you know, has certain karmic results. In the fact that 
that the basic delusion still motivates us. The basic ignorance is still the, the thing that we're caught into. We haven't seen through that yet. So in practice of meditation, the whole aim is not to, to attain positive states, even though that, that's a skillful means and has certain benefits, but the aim is the liberation from delusion, from ignorance. So this liberation then is, we investigate in that, we, we look into the vipassana, the word vipassana is, means looking into the way things are. It's not a recently discovered meditation technique <laughs> that some people claim is, is theirs. Like sometimes you hear people talking about vipassana as if it was something new or something, uh, a technique, a certain type of tech meditation technique. But it actually means looking into the way things are. Paying attention. And, uh, and this attentiveness, just by paying attention, is awakened attentiveness to the present. It's not analytical. So it's not like you're you're trying to understand why you're suffering uh, by analyzing uh, the things that you, you know your life experiences. It's it's the willingness to to allow whatever you're feeling or thinking to be what it is, and but your uh, relationship to it is instead of identity is recognition. It is this. It's. It's completely honest recognition of feeling is like this. Physical feeling, pleasure, pleasurable sensations are like, painful sensations are like this. Neutral sensations are like this. So this is what's happening right now. Breathing is like this. Inhalation, exhalation. Emotional states are, like, are the way they are. You know, feeling... Lonely is like this. Sadness is like this. Anger, fear, anxiety. Sometimes we can think, oh, I shouldn't, you know, I've got a problem with anxiety. So then that becomes personal again, isn't it? Because anxiety might be a... a, a a common experience in consciousness, then the identity with it goes along with the, with the conventional reality. I'm a very anxious person. And then th- that means that there's something wrong with that. Uh, there's something wrong with me for being anxious because my ideal of a, of a normal, healthy human individual is one who's at ease with life, who isn't always anxious and worried. That's the, the ideal of, of the society. We shouldn't feel anxious and worried that this is a kind of mental illness and that we've got to try to do something to 
to get rid of it. So then these are the, the, you know, the true but not right, right but not true kind of situation. The, the attachment is the identif identification, isn't it? I'm an anxious person and, the, and that I shouldn't feel anxious. That there's, there's a kind of mental illness. That's what we fear of being kind of mentally unbalanced. And then that, that creates even more problems. Then we can trace, you know, the memories will come up about all the things that have made us anxious over the years. Uh, all the, you know, the ones you start with, I'm, a I, I'm anxious, then the memories will all come up, will burst into your consciousness of experiences that, that, that you can remember where you were very anxious and worried about something or other or about life, or about yourself. So it's not even the idea of, of not identification, but recognizing how identification with conditions, the result of that is suffering. Now this is to be reflected upon, you know, to be really examined. What is suffering? When we use that word dukkha, what, what do we mean? Uh, so, you know, and, and then we, I mean, we've, all of us have gone into trying to find the perfect English equivalent to the Pali word dukkha, and I don't know how many boring discussions I've had to endure on this subject. <coughs> <laughs> Uh, and then people have very strong views about, you know, trying to find the perfect English equivalent to the Pali word dukkha. And <laughs> you sit through another session of people's views and opinions. But to me, that, you know, the word suffering may not, people, some, some people find that not very useful, but it's good enough as far as I'm concerned. Because I'm, I'm, all I want to know is the, is the reality of it the experience of suffering, what is it? Or dukkha, what is dukkha in terms of, of the present? Not as the Pali dictionary defines it or whatever, but the, you know, why, why when everything is, I've noticed, you know, when everything's going well, you know, how, uh, every, you know, there's no kind of obvious dukkha. Everything's just going along very well, and quite happy, peaceful community, and the weather's nice, and everything's just wonderful. How one can still feel anxious? And you say, why can't I just relax and enjoy this? Because, you know, because we, everything's going well, but then we don't know tomorrow what might happen. There's always that that dark shadow, you know, of something unexpected might happen, something terrible, and uh, there's always imminent danger or disappointment or dread about the future. So even in life at its best, when life is, is at its very best, at peak experiences, this shadow will appear and make us feel well, it's okay now, but tomorrow it, it could really, the 
things could really fall apart. Because we haven't gotten to the source yet. You know, we still, you know, we, all the happiness in the world, uh, all the wealth, the praise, the success, and all the best that this realm has to offer. But coming from the basic ignorance of attachment and identity, then, it, then it's still not enough. Isn't it? Even if you had a guarantee that it would be yours forever. But you still hadn't broken the attachment. You still hadn't seen through the attachment. Then, even with that, that's why you know, you see people who have everything and feel quite neurotic and frightened and, and paranoid about life. Because there's always the possibility of losing it. Uh, fame, being attached to the idea of being famous, always the fear of, of losing that, of being nobody. Attached to wealth, there's always a possibility of losing. I hear Michael Jackson is going bankrupt. <laughs> and he has like $200 million or something like that. <laughs> and uh, endless possibilities of, of loss. You get very attached to somebody else, to situations. And there's always that anxiety around when they, when they, the separation or the death, the loss. So that, those are the signs, the dukkha. This is on, just for me, you know, just recognizing even with the, with the, when life is at its best, this, if I'm not fully awake, fully resting in awareness, then I do feel this, this kind of irritation in my mind, a tendency to, where, which will bring up worry or negative states, doubts, uncertainty, insecurity, mistrust, or paranoia, or whatever. So then, the, the way out is through this awareness. And this is, but it doesn't seem like anything. It's not an attainment. So you can't willfully make yourself aware. And I remember all the experiments with mindfulness I've had over the years, you know, and be mindful and, and willfully being mindful. You know, so I'm trying desperately to be mindful all the time and willfully, willing myself into mindfulness and then making terrible mistakes. You know, like being walking, I remember in Tham Sang Pat years ago, this monastery in Thailand had, had to walk for several hours on Bindabat in the morning, barefoot. A very rocky place and and his narrow paths with a lot of rocks jutting forth and tree stumps and little things you could hurt your feet. You know, if you stubbed your toe 
on these rocks. And so this is a chance to be really mindful. Mindfulness, mindfulness. So I start out with mindfulness, 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 and trip my stub my toe. <laughs> I said, "You're not being mindful enough." <laughs> so then the the jackal inside says, "You're not mindful enough. You be more mindful." <laughs> and so then you get obsessed with mindfulness and you end up stubbing the same toe again, and be in total agony. And then the mind went, well, I can't be mindful of what's wrong with me. And, and uh, you know, I try so hard and I'm never successful at it. And, and uh, after all, I'm, I'm, you know, I've got tender feet and I'm not like the other monks. They're, they've got tough feet and I've got soft feet. And I go into self-pity and resentment <laughs> like that. And make a real, you know, real, create a real... Uh, scenario of suffering over that. Willful mindfulness. Or the way we can kind of insult each other when somebody does drop, breaks a cup or something. You weren't mindful in any kind of scolding way we can use the <laughs> If you were mindful you wouldn't have broken that, that cup. No, we can even use it to nag somebody else. Use the word <laughs> to uh, to to uh, scold somebody. So then, uh, you know, I began to see that what I was, I I I could get so concentrated that I wouldn't be mindful. You know, I, I'd get so fixated on becoming mindful and so concentrate on that that I would actually not be mindful through this this great effort of will. So beginning to recognize that, that mindfulness isn't a willful act. It's not like like something you have to create, but it's a natural state of being when you learn to open and relax. So this sense of of being present and and being and allowing even the anxiety to exist rather than trying to get rid of it. And if you're feeling upset or anxious, uh, then we can willfully try to get rid of it. You know, trying to suppress it. So a mindfulness allows life to flow through us in the way that it, it will, will that it the way that it does the way that it happens. And it's through this trusting in this awareness, sati sampachanya, this, this way we can really open and receive uh, through consciousness the way life is in the present, and uh, a very what the subjective qualities that it has. That we uh, the way that we experience it like this. So then meditation, instead of becoming a willful act of I've got to meditate, it's more like siesta of the mind. 
more a, a, a sense of being at ease. Learn, learning to, to, you, to your life here is one of being at ease, of relaxing, of not seeing monasticism or uh, Amravati or whatever is, is a kind of continuous kind of challenge to you to find out whether you, you know, you've got to prove yourself or you've got to live up to these standards and get rid of your defilements and make yourself into uh, some ideal you have of what a, what a good nun should be or a good monk should be. You can see like when, like when you're accepted in the Sangha, that is, uh, that is it's, it's like, it's really not rather saying, now you're expected to live according to these rules and you should be like this and you shouldn't do that and then it becomes like a, a you know, something we, uh, like an arduous ordeal that we, we've taken on for ourselves. Or, that's one way of holding it, but then in the long run that doesn't work. You know, one can only do that for so long and then you get fed up with it. Because <coughs> you're never going to succeed it that way. You know, it's, it's, uh, you can kind of at moments, through willfulness, become a extremely good and disciplined and moral and, and all that and, and, and then you can feel very, you know, that will make you feel good for a while but you can't sustain it because it's based on a willful act of trying to become something. And then when you can't hold it and sustain it, then you feel even worse. You feel, oh, I've wasted my life, I've not, I can't really be a good monk or nun, and I'm not really a good meditator, and, and I, I'm not worthy of the alms food I get, and on and on like that. So, so that's, the, that's the result of holding that, clinging to the ideal of monasticism, and of projecting it into our life here at this monastery. So that's why encouragement is, is uh, you know, in the Sangha, past few years we've tried, we've, we've really seen through a lot of the way we used to hold our monastic life and trying to see that the result isn't all that good of just, you know, of of, of try, trying to will ourselves into becoming. So then one begins to change one's attitude toward monastic life or is seeing it not as a lot of insufferable rules, restraints and boundaries, restrictions and ideals that we can never quite uh, encompass or succeed at totally. But, seeing, but recognizing it's a way of relaxing, simplification. To me, it's, it makes life simple. It's just a, such a simple way to live. So the benign discipline is a simplification of everything rather than a complication. Because it gives boundaries in, uh, to behavior that, that uh, make life more simple. 
And then ultimate simplicity is awareness. There's nothing more simple than that. This is simple, relaxed attention of being at ease and open to the present. A very receptive state, you know, receptive, relaxed, and open. And uh, the more you recognize that, realize that, Then, you're, then you have insight into the path. The path is a way of being totally at ease. The Eightfold Path, all the samas, the sama, all the right this, right that, right everything, is rather than being, you know, uh, something that uh, seems difficult and remote, because right always has wrong, is it's a, 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 you know what's right is uh, wrong goes along with right. So sama, uh, you know, how do we want to use that word sama? And so for me, it's it it conveys this sense of being at ease, trusting. It's like sada or faith. It's where panya operates. It's, and the faith, the sattva and panya then, then are, are balanced with mindfulness, with awareness. You find the, the, the faith and the wisdom balancing each other. You have a, your, your intellect, your, your intelligence, and your emotional life is then finding a balance in the present. Or the imbalances then are recognized and you're not making a problem about it. You're not, you're not trying to control or get something or get rid of anything. So it is it, like a vehicle, you know, uh, it's the Sangha vehicle. Uh, can be, it's like, like getting, entering, you know, boarding a, a lovely ship like we did in Norway <laughs> and staying on it till it gets to Tromso. <laughs> of course we saw many beautiful spots, you know, the, you could, we have moments where we, we, we were able to leave the ship in Trondheim and have a look at the cathedral and come back. But we always knew where the ship was and tried to make it in time before the ship left. So that at least we we know where the, where the, where the ship is. So in the in sangha life, it, it is a vehicle that that uh, we you know that those who ent go on board, you know, enter this vehicle, then see it as something to trust in, you know, to relax into, rather than that makes you all nervous and tense and, and anxious about yourself and life and the Sangha and all this. And we, we can make endless problems about monks and nuns and rules and discipline and all that. I mean, we, 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 we're so easily prone to do that. But for this is my own 
experiment with this over the years and I found that this is this is what gives me joy in this light is is uh, seeing it as a as a beautiful way to live a way that i I like and respect and that i I can trust and relax into it feel at ease with it and that's through the awareness not through some kind of mental kind of convincing explanations or analysis of it it's learning to trust in your in in your awareness and the problems that you create around sangha or monasticism or meditation or whatever you do begin to be the witness of it. See, th these are these are creations that these are things that you create into the present. There's something that you know you you're putting into this present moment. And then even in the midst of uh, of difficult situations, uh, in the midst of a quarrel or acrimony within the sangha or misunderstandings or whatever then these are the challenges also to learn to trust in the awareness the way uh, quarreling or anger upsets and, and affects me rather than than just you know feeling wanting to run away from it or feeling or getting bitter or enraged towards the sangha because it it uh, you know, it disappointed you as an ideal. You know, you think monks shouldn't act like that, <laughs> and then uh, and then start working. You know, developing. You know, proliferating on that. And it's true, monk. You know, we're we're being nasty or something, and we shouldn't be like that. It's true. But then, if I grasp that monks shouldn't be nasty, then when monk is nasty, then then I create a problem. I create the problem. I can't blame it on the monk, and I create it myself. I create the problem. So I begin to see that, how, how I create, what I create into the present, and the way it is, uh, in terms of the emotional reality that I'm experiencing at this moment. It's like this. The awareness of that is that awareness isn't angry or resentful. Awareness is pure. It brings you in a state of purity, natural state of being, pure. So when you when you recognize that, trust it, then the impurities that you're experiencing are seen for what they are. They, their conditions arising, ceasing, anicca dukkha nata. They, they, they are what they are. And the more you, you penetrate that until, you know, you really, really examine experience, till you, you, you know this through insight, gut knowledge.
So I offer this as an encouragement for uh, your life and to uh, enjoy your life here. In spite of the difficulties that inevitably arise when you have two humans living together, <laughs> uh, inevitably there's going to be conflict. You notice how much you know, the conflicts in the Sangha are a personal thing. Usually very around, not around Vinaya or morality or anything like that. It's around personality preferences or, or whatever, opinions and views. So we can, you know, you're living with very good people, you know, committed people who are all, you know, moral and and intentions are very good and everybody, you know, I don't know anyone here who's here for the wrong reasons or shouldn't be here. And yet the problem we have on just personal problems with the way this person said this or does that or doesn't do things or whatever and that so we you know then this this is this is the way human the human condition is, you know, we when we identify personally with our with our personalities, with the w what we like and don't like, then then we we're going to suffer a lot. We, it's very difficult to live with anyone, <laughs> unless we can find you know someone who is willing to agree with me all the time. <laughs> and then I get bored. <laughs> Or offer this for reflection.